2: And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host Adam Scalina, and I'm your host Matt Scalina. And Matt, I am so en fuego today for this episode <laughs> because we've got Bo Jarvis. He's the president at West Group. This is like I'm super excited that. Oh, Bo it the was. Program. You know
3: what? We just finished
2: uh, at Kokomo Studios with with Bo in the studio, and um, man, that was a great conversation. This is a this is a great episode. Runs a little long. It does run long, but, uh, you know, I would have ran longer if it was, if, if I wasn't trying to be respectful of Bo's time. Exactly. He's got I, five kids. He's got, he's got he runs, five. he runs one of the biggest development companies in Western uh, Canada, in Western Canada. Like,
3: let's just talk about how large West group is. Cause I think
2: a lot of listeners are going to know West group. Let me bring up the development horsepower here. So tell me how many projects do they have in the, they, in the lower mainland? They have 40 plus active projects. Right now, in the lower mainland, how many how many homes under construction?
3: Well, Adam, I'm glad you asked. They have almost two thousand homes currently under construction
2: eighteen ninety seven. How many residential strata units in the permit process? Over three thousand, Adam, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Last but not least, how many square feet under construction at the moment? One point eight million. Wow.
3: And these guys, West Group, I think, is known, and we talk a little bit about uh, this with Bo they're known for master plan communities. Like they don't do one off. They're not right. They're the definition
2: of creating community. Right. But they're, but they're, you know, in the real sense of like a large developer, they are, they dabble in everything. That's right. right.
3: That's right. An, an incredible portfolio. And we talk a little bit about that today. This conversation runs a gamut from where would you invest if you're a mom and pop investor, where's the market headed in the next six months to five years uh, the politics of building in Vancouver, the challenges in the current environment when it comes to interest rates, inflation, supply chain uh, issues, it's all encompassing. And I feel like Bo is uh, the perfect guy to talk about this moment.
2: Did I come across too much of as, as a fanboy? Because at one moment I I screamed out, what are you doing for lunch? <laughs> uh I do Bo, feel like and, and it was crickets, right? Bo was like It was
3: crickets. Probably just cuz he had a, somebody planned for lunch already. Maybe. Um, maybe that's that's where I hope. We make a joke early on about a different podcast because we I don't want to get too deep into this, but Bo was born in Whistler. Right. And grew Would, up
2: if I could pick anywhere to be born. Right, grew Whistler. up
3: grew up skiing and skateboarding in the 90s in Whistler, which I'm not a historian of the skate Uh, snow scene in Canada. But I would say that is the crucible. That is where all things come from. Whistler in the nineties.
2: Well, I feel like it, so all the skateboard and snowboard and ski videos and just the the videos we watched as kids. And it was, and it totally, and if
3: you look from even, you know, the stuff that people are doing in the seventies, eighties and, and before versus today, it was all, it all came out of that moment.
2: Yeah. And I, and I mean, I guess that's the thing, right? Is, is we used to kind of look to Vancouver. That's where most of the pro, you know, skateboard and snowboard, a lot of the, that scene had, had kind of originated here, but yeah, unbelievable. He was, he was in that, like he says, maybe that's a different podcast, but that's almost enough to start the uh, the Whistler '90s podcast we've been talking about on and off for years. <laughs> <laughs> just, just try and get Bo back for that, and then it's it's, it's a, just a, a one part series of maybe a one off that that lives on iTunes. Yeah, <laughs> but this is a fantastic conversation, Matt. I'm I'm so fired up. We talk about like just generally the origin story of just just Bo and real estate, right? But also talk about West Group, how West Group came to be, how they came to be so sizable. What does a day in the life of Bo Jarvis, who's the president of West Group, like such a huge company look like? What's he doing day to day? Where does he see the opportunities? What are some of the challenges facing the development community and the city of Vancouver? And what's going to happen in the market? We get we get Bo to bring out his crystal ball. That's right. That's right. And
3: you ask him some pretty
2: specific <laughs> submarket questions. Yeah. Like specifically... Not in Vancouver. <laughs> and yeah, and then specifically, like, if lunch doesn't work today, are you free tomorrow? <laughs> Anyways, uh, there was some, yeah, the fanboying is is real on this one. What else do we got, Matt, before we cut to this conversation with Bo? You know what? Honestly, this, this we go long. It's a great conversation. I say we just, we just, let's cut to, cut to our talk with Bo Jarvis, president of West Group. I love this one. Enjoy. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds. Sonhouse offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic inspired design. Register today at Marcon.ca slash Sonhouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at Marcon.ca or follow them at Instagram at Marconhomes. Marcon, Building for Life. Okay, so we're here with Bo Jarvis, president at West Group. How you doing, Bo?
1: Doing very well, thank you.
3: Yeah, th- thanks so much for taking the time, Bo, uh, to come
2: down in studio. This is great.
1: Yeah, thanks very much for having me.
2: So, Bo, most of our listeners are going to be familiar with West Group, but can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Um, as I was saying, kind of before you press the record button there, um, born and raised in Whistler, Family was in construction and real estate there all my life. Came down to Vancouver about 20 years ago. I was a broker up there. I also said before you press the record button when I was asking about you two brothers working together that I worked with my mom. So I worked with my mom up there in real estate brokerage and up there you're kind of jack of all trades. Um, there was no commercial representation. So you did a, you know, a multimillion dollar home sale, you did a retail lease an industrial lease, and you actually worked on development land. And so I had a listing for a development parcel in Squamish. And I've told this story kind of many times in the public, so I'll kind of abbreviate it. But uh, the market was quite sour up there. For a fair amount of time, I hadn't received a commission in about 10 months, took a second mortgage out to pay the first mortgage, but had this listing of a development parcel and was kind of took it down to Vancouver. Some people I knew, Chris Evans at Ani and Dave Evans at Cressy at the time and was determined to sell this piece of real estate. Um, went and presented it to both of them. Uh, Ani ended up writing an offer and ultimately, uh, acquiring the site and building it out. And in the process of that made me uh, an employment offer. And I was still kind of skiing every day. Um, a half day going to the office, do some real estate work. And that's probably why I didn't generate a commission for 10 months. Now. <laughs> maybe, it wasn't, maybe it wasn't the market. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, I didn't want to give that up and turn down the offer at first, but they made a better offer. And, um, so that was about 18, 19 years ago or something, 18 or 19 years ago. And we eighteen years ago, I think, uh, and we came down to Vancouver, worked with Ani for about nine years in sort of this prolific growth phase of uh, real estate development and taking you know buildings vertical and land development, and it was just um, an incredible education. And then uh, jumped over to West Group about nine years ago, and yeah, uh, here I am, <laughs> yeah. So, wow. And that's the abbreviated version. There's all kinds of uh, crazy stuff in between.
2: I, I find like in in Vancouver real estate, often the agents kind of operate in silos in the sense that they, it's like you're residential or you're commercial, you're an industrial specialist. Mm-hmm. But do you attribute like your, you know, where you are today almost in, in the sense that you had to focus on so many asset classes in, in your early days?
1: Yeah, for sure I do. And then you know, of course, growing up on a construction site um, as well, um, most of my life and working in civil contracting to put myself through university up in Whistler uh, for a company called Whistler Excavations, where we put a lot of infrastructure in the ground and things like that. I was a pipe layer really with a what and I operated what they call a D1, which is a, a, a shovel. But that and then the, the rounded background of brokerage. Um, and then you moved into Ani, which was also involved in development of all facets of real Estate in all asset classes, so it was a it was a it was a good merge into the development side from the brokerage side of having a, a this sort of jack of all trades, master of none approach, and yeah, I, I actually think that that is a very attributable to perhaps you know where I am today is just having this broader knowledge of all of the real estate. As- I call it asset classes or faucets of development
2: right Maybe just just kind of going back, I mean, my sense of, of you growing up is you're you're probably skiing all the time. <laughs> you're living in probably the one of the nicest places to live in the world. And how'd you get in the real like so your family is in real estate, but but often that leads to people, Going the other direction, right? Yeah. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about your kind of getting into real estate?
1: Sure, yeah. So I did want to go the opposite direction. Um, Upon graduating university with a commerce degree, it was sort of in that phase of the dot-com, you know, craziness, um, which turned out to be the dot-bomb. And (laughs) I wanted to get into tech. You know, because it was it was sexy and in vogue at the time, and um, was very determined to do that, and went and graduated from university, did okay, and started working for one of those dot com companies. That essentially, it literally lost its fund its funding two days after I started working there, <laughs> um, and then. Um, I started, you know, working for Sweat Equity during the day and delivering pizza. I, this was in Victoria. Delivering pizza at night to people that I went to uh, school with, ultimately. Oh, aren't you working for that? Tech? <laughs> I thought you were a yeah, yeah, tech, just tech guy Take your pizza, take your ham and pineapple. Um, and then, you know, I, I even tried, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Victoria, but they have those Kabuki cabs that run around. Um, and I even tried driving a Kabuki cab for a long weekend. I think I lost money because they make you rent the cab and buy a t-shirt. And I came at the end of the long weekend and said, you know, like, this isn't working for me. And I think I've lost money. And he said, well, just keep the T-shirt, you know. And and so that didn't work out very well. And then I I ended up going to work for a a video game development company on a six-month contract, which was an ultimate failure as well. And then jump back to Whistler, working kind of in the family business, if you want to call it that, which was real estate. My mom helped to open one of the first real estate offices in Whistler. So it was just always there. I was always surrounded by it. And yeah, I grew up skiing and skateboarding. Um, that's that was There wasn't enough kids for sports teams so that you you skied in the winter uh, and then you played tennis or skateboard in the summer. And I chose skateboarding. Uh, but uh, you, we that's all you did um, oh, right. and ended up. Doing that in a competitive way, got a scholarship in Montana for a little while for skiing and, you know, kind of all that kind of
3: and, aspect. And you, I'm just thinking, not to veer too far off of real estate, but uh, Whistler seems like that in the 90s, that was kind of a booming
2: snowboard, skateboard, like the whiskey videos. We, we, we could talk oh, yeah. a lot about, <laughs> we, about pro skateboarders. We, and pro <laughs> <sport>. <laughs> we, we grew could. up kind of in a similar vein and a lot of people in real estate, I find skateboarded. Yeah. Oh,
1: I, I think we, we could have a separate podcast. Yeah.
2: But a <laughs> whistler in the nineties must've been like an incredible uh,
1: spot. It was incredible for sure. Yeah. And I didn't get too much into the snowboarding scheme. Cause I was competitively ski racing at that time. Cause I'd sort of come up through the ranks and, and there was, a, there was quite a battle with snowboarders and skiers and, you know, you're winging your pole at one of the snowboarders <laughs> on the mountain <laughs> that blindly comes over. The, but, uh, but I have a ton of respect for, uh, snowboarders and, and skateboarding was a very much part of the culture. Um, you know, and I, I only I actually just kind of quit skateboarding a few years ago, a couple of years ago. But, yeah, it was it was a really incredible time to be in Whistler during that sort of proliferation of. And it really changed all of the technology of the hardware and the hard gear and things like that um, So at that time. So right. it was really neat. Yeah.
2: And, and maybe kind of moving like West Group, can you give us kind of a, a backstory on West Group? Most a people lot of- will know West Group, but yeah, for sure, those listeners yeah. who who don't.
1: Yeah. It's an uh, incredible company. Um, obviously, it's been around for about 50 years. Um, the founder is Peter Wessick, who is um, a wonderful human, uh, and his family are wonderful people. Very, very community-oriented, very humble. Um, so it came from humble beginnings, immigrant family. You know, Fast forward to today, where um, we're probably one of the largest privately held real estate development companies and asset portfolio owners in Western Canada. And you know and continuing to grow. Um, we're involved in all facets of real estate uh, similar to you know where I worked previously at Awni. Uh, so we build residential, commercial including industrial retail and office. And our core objective is to constantly grow our own own portfolio, but we engage in what we refer to as merchant activity, which is selling condominiums, townhomes, houses, whatever kind of makes sense uh, anywhere. And yeah, that's kind of, that's who we are. We're Very vertically integrated. So we have most of our services are in-house construction, interior design, development, property management, leasing, financing, customer care. We've brought it all in-house because we have enough volume to do that. And it's a significant competitive advantage when you're able to do that. But that's kind of West Group in a nutshell. One of the things I would say is we care deeply about our culture. And I think we're known for it. So, yeah, that's... uh,
2: When you you actually look, I mean... even just at the we were just on the website yesterday I don't, I don't think people really understand how big west group really is and and how involved you are in all facets of the market right what what is like a day in the life of uh, bo jarvis look like
1: <laughs> well i will say this um we have what i think is one of the best executive teams in our industry and so you know, a day in a life of Bo Jarvis is running around bugging all the executives and probably driving them nuts. And you know, they do the heavy lifting and the and the real work at the company. But it, you know, it, it's really trying to. I I I focus a lot on what's going on in the, like kind of external to West Group. So a lot of um, politics around what we do, a lot of policy initiation around what we do. I'm engaged in a lot of advocacy work for our industry. I was chair of UDI throughout through the early parts, or most of, I guess, the pandemic actually, and did a lot of advocacy work with government there, trying to advocate for you know for construction sites to be an essential service during the COVID pandemic, for example, and or construction being an essential service industry, and so I, I spent a lot of my time on that, and then of course trying to lead strategic direction at the organization, um, focusing on long-term sort of both short-term and long-term trends, What's kind of happening with, call it supply and demand uh, dynamics, you know, immigration, all these types of things is what I'm kind of thinking about on a daily basis. And then, like I said, I go bang on one of the, our great executives' doors and said, have you seen this trend? Why are we not thinking? Right. <laughs> and there, oh, here comes Bo again, rolling their eyes. And <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's kind of what goes on in the day.
3: So I'm just thinking in terms of the, the challenges in the market, but you know, we're, we're in a, what appears to be the start of a downturn or we're a couple months into, to a softening in the market, but we're dealing with inflation, rising interest rates, supply chain challenges. But then there's the challenges in the city of Vancouver, like the politics of building. I feel like you're, if you're looking for challenges, there's, there's a number of them, right? Can you talk about what, what some of the biggest challenges facing West group are?
1: Yeah. I mean, you just named everything, right? Um, it's a really unique time, actually. I, I I find that it's probably one of the most complex times I have certainly operated in. Um, and you have this sort of perfect storm of so many things. I I mentioned earlier that I was listening to your recent podcast with Kit Sauter, and he mentioned on the political level, their leading or, or government is working through multiple sort of conflicts or storms, if you you will, right? You have climate change, you have reconciliation, you have a housing affordability crisis, you know, and that's kind of this persistent thing that's been going off on over the last several years. And now add inflation, a pandemic, a war in Ukraine, you know, on and on and on. Um, and our industry is definitely, um it's been, a, it's been a tough slog. You know, developers by nature of, I mean, historically, it we're not, I'll call it a well-liked, a group of industry folks. Um, you know, the the media has its way with us. The general public has its way with us. Um, there's a lack of understanding of what we really do today. Um, I think that is the development industry's fault, frankly, for not working harder to educate the, the general public um, policymakers politicians government various levels of governments on on what we do the risks we take and 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 the and the fact that we really are active in our communities um the, the you know the really good development companies are really good companies, really good corporate citizens, really good members of the community and doing a lot of really great work and they care and and we fall into that category. And so I think that one of the things that has been challenging over the last few years is trying to like convey that in a meaningful way such that we can build bridges and find common ground in this sort of mess that is now an affordability crisis. And you have all these different things, right? So you have like climate change. So uh, Governments need to tackle that, and they need to build policies around that. And then those policies filter into, like, the Ministry of Environment, or row or, you know, all these different ministries that then put policies out. And for us to navigate getting a single home built, you're now meandering through all of these policies. Climate change is just one. Reconciliation is another one. You know, tenant relocation, and, and um, we'll call it you know, demo evictions, rent all that kind of a real thing, uh, by the way, and policy is being driven to address that. And so now that gets layered on. And so the layering on of all of these policies, um, if I could put it, you know, in a more abbreviated way, it would be like breathing through a fire hose in the last, call it decade. And it's only getting worse. It's not getting better. So, you know, to try and tackle the big problem that is, you know, directly related to our business, which is the affordability crisis it's it's incredibly challenging and I don't see that changing quickly
3: and and so just thinking about your answer there uh you know often we hear it's like cut red tape obviously there's there's kind of a, a ton of bureaucracy and policy and it and I don't think I'm not even saying that in a pejorative way but there just is and you don't see it getting better like how do we is there a way in your mind to kind of expedite the process to, to actually build homes that are that are gonna hit those targets with climate change, with reconciliation, with you know, go down the, the laundry list?
1: Yeah, I think I think there are some ways. It will be challenging. You know, one of the things that we're starting to see, and you're probably noticing it, is you're seeing our housing minister, um, David Eby, who potentially could now be, you know, the next premier, but you're seeing him come out fairly In aggressively and and in a bold way trying to or endeavoring to hold municipalities a little bit more accountable. If you think about it, all of our housing uh, and 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 permitting and processing around getting housing built has been downloaded to municipalities. And this has happened this has been going on for a long time. And so we have this process to build housing where you take it through an entitlement process and there's public hearings and there's public engagement and all this kind of stuff and these municipal politicians are sitting in a public hearing and They're trying to move the agenda forward. But, you know, there are people in front of them crying and doing all this kind of stuff. And there's no political cover anymore from any other levels of government. So they're not saying, sorry, miss. I understand that you're really upset. You even make a valid point. However, we have these mandates by various other levels of government. You know, we're not going to get transit funding if we don't do this or or whatever. And so I see intervention by higher levels of government as something that is likely going to be needed or important to sort of unlock some of these processing issues. The other thing that I would focus on is I alluded to it earlier. I'll just call it education and engagement. I think we need to, you know, you see the uh, current mayor of the city of Vancouver, who has come out in the Broadway plan um, with stronger tenant um, relocation package. And he's now talking about that with the Vancouver plan, which they're about to discuss imminently here. And I think that these are policies that are coming out that are grabbing headlines. They're policies that are coming out because of headlines. And and the headlines are mostly now about tenant dislocation, renoviction, demoviction, again, a very real thing. However, when you look at operating buildings and the landlord side of things, we look at an operating environment where your revenue is capped in a way arbitrarily and your cost escalation is totally out of control. So it's a totally unsustainable operating environment. And the reason I'm kind of bringing that into the picture here is it's a perfect example of where we need to get all stakeholders in a room, to find common ground, share perspectives, educate mm-hmm. one another, and have policy that is emerging and advancing that is fair and sustainable for everybody involved. Because right now it's not. And I think as long as that persists, what we're doing is we're setting ourselves up for failure in terms of advancing the supply of housing. So those are kind of the two big things. Right. And and I think
3: the perspective thing is is... I think about that often because, well, you know, the things that you, and I mean, we're, we're realtors too. So you don't go on Twitter and read anything nice about realtors, but I mean, the idea. Slightly with the, below developers. Yeah, I would
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're chasing uh, each other to the bottom yeah. there. Yeah.
3: But, but I mean, the idea, like say, for instance, with the Broadway plan and we have a commercial real estate podcast, we we've been doing as well. And we were talking to some commercial brokers and they were like, none of this pencils out. So like you go on Twitter and, and I guess even largely in the mainstream media, it's like, oh, the Broadway plan. What about speculation? What about, oh, the greedy developers are going to, you know, it's like, wow, this is just going to be a bonanza. And meanwhile, you're talking to guys working with the developers and they're like, none, nothing's even going to get built for a, for a long time here. There's just, it doesn't, the, the numbers don't work. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that perspective is. It would be hard to put it in the mainstream media right now and, and have a serious conversation, but I, I think you're, it, it seems to me bang on that that perspective is totally lost, that you need people, there has to be some sort of financial benefit to, to go through the process.
1: For sure. I think that, um, that, again, coming together, right, getting all the stakeholders in the room to, to find this common ground so that we can advance policy that makes sense, right? The other thing that we don't talk about or isn't talked about is the financing of real estate development. Right. And the risk involved and the bank's perception of risks or the senior lender's perception of risks can sometimes it's not tier one banks or whatever. But we don't talk about that. Right. It's, it's not talked about in um, the council forum, like municipal council forum. It's not talked about when we're, we're uh, doing public advocacy work on policy or consultation. And it is, you know, becoming increasingly complex. And the banks, you, you know, you, it's it's not negotiable how they operate, right? There's, there's, there's bookends, and those are the bookends. And so a lot of this policy that's being created, it's sort of policy on the fly, right? And there's no question about, well, is this even financeable? Right? Is is this is this a reality that once we get it through the right. system and it makes its way up to you know a developer that is making an application to finance the construction of a development? Is it even you know going to work? And so it, there's so many aspects of how we're developing policy, housing policy today that are it's like it's de- policy development on the fly. It's happening on the floor of council at the whim of a council member or a mayor saying I'd like to see this. And then at the snap of a fingers, it's done. And it, there's no testing. There's no economic testing. There's no qualitative testing. There's nothing. Right. And so and that you mentioned the Broadway plan and that there were what was there, 30 or 40 amendments on the floor of council with right. that plan. And in my mind, and time will tell, and I could be wrong, but I think the viability of that plan in the in the near term was diminished. By many of those amendments in the long term, who knows, right? right? Maybe the the demand uh, supply equation allows the market to sort of evolve into a place where some of those things make sense. But today, and, and I think in the next couple or a few years, I think the viability of much of what was approved in that plan was diminished by way of the crazy stuff going on on the floor of council.
2: Like we've been doing this podcast now coming up on six years or so. And, you know, we've had a lot of people from UDI over, on over the years and just screaming about the fact that it's a supply issue, right? Like that we have to create supply. And now finally, we're starting to see kind of the discourse around housing change uh, at a, at the political level. Do you feel like there's been gains made in, in terms of the supply? Like Because over the years, we've watched. David Eby was on the
3: show. Yeah, we had David Yeah, that was before the when the liberals were still in power. David Eby came on, but he
2: he seems to be singing a different tune now than he
3: was at that time.
2: And it was it was you know demand side policy just layered on top of more demand side policy, right? And now we're starting to see people like Eby talking about supply. Do you think we've we've shifted at all, or have you seen progress?
1: I am optimistic on this front. I'm actually quite a fan of David EB, I gotta say. Uh, I'm happy to say it publicly. <laughs> um, you know, he has fostered one of the most open and collaborative relationships with our industry that I have seen a, politi- a provincial politician do in my certainly in my time of operating. and I'm really I, I have a lot of admiration. For how he is engaged, and he's he's not being as political about it. He's really using data, and he's trying to solve the problem. And so I will say that I, I think I'm optimistic about the direction this is taking because it was, you know, the we were we were giving so much credence to some of these academics up at SFU or UBC, and I could mention names right now, but I'm not going to. Um, <laughs>
2: <laughs> They've all been on the show, <laughs> well,
1: um, and and I think you know I I would listen to them on CKNW you know, on the, on the five o'clock drive home or six o'clock drive home. And they're talking about, you know, demand side measures and supply, and they're going into titles of properties and they're talking about foreign owners and students owning houses. And then you get into the money laundering thing and all this kind of stuff. And it's all, it's all bullshit, frankly. Right. Like, like, you, so okay, you put all we've we've had speculation tax. We have an empty homes tax in the city of Vancouver. We have additional school tax. We have a luxury PTT. I, I'm probably missing a couple here. And and in that time that we put all those demand side measures in, in the form of taxes that were supported by all these academics who were poo pooing the idea that supplies the problem. In that time. The price of real estate has gone up by what percentage? Right. And, and, and why is that, right? And so, I, you know, the, there is, there's some people who, you know, the, the quote is, it's supply stupid, right? Quote, unquote. And it, and it really is, right? Like, you know, economics is a science that has been around for how long? And one of the fundamental tenets of economics is supply and demand and how its impacts are on price, And so we were seemingly ignoring that for the last 10 or 15 years. And what I always find ironic or kind of paradoxical, too, is that when someone says, Bo, what's your honest opinion about how we're going to work our way through this? And I have a conversation about supply. They say, of course, you're going to say that you're a developer. Right. Well, but wait a second. I prefer to operate in a... Environment where there's high demand and low supply,
3: right.
2: right, right, But you're
1: asking me to give you my honest opinion on how we're going to come out of this and start to have some price adjustments, right? Yeah. It's increased supply, but that's not my preferred operating environment,
2: right? That's just yes, so you scarcely, can sell, any, sell more. Scarcity works when you right? own everything. So
1: it, I always, it's always ironic to me that 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 sort of, of course. You're a developer. You're going to say that increased supply. No, you know, well, there was there's been times in the last ten years where there's so little supply at given moments, you know, in the, let's call it the pre-sale market, and that you, you have people coming into your sales center and saying, you know, show me what you got here. And we say, okay, we have this, this is our inventory. Okay, I, I like this two bedroom. What's the price? The price is, you know, $600,000 or $700,000. Okay, I'd like to make an offer at $675,000. No. Okay. Can I get a free parking stop? No. Can I get a free storage locker? No. Can I get an upgrade of hardware? No, this is the price, <laughs> and, <laughs> right. right? And that and like that's 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 the preferred operating environment for kind of anybody that is in business, right? But that's not how we're going to get our way out of the affordable housing crisis,
2: right? So and, and none of it makes sense if you have a, a severely broken city, right? And sure. I mean that's the thing; it's almost like we get the same. Obviously, real estate agents get the same critique, right? Is oh, if you if you're arguing for supply, it's it. I think it's the argument is. You want more to sell, I think, <laughs> but it doesn't, it just doesn't shake out. Right. Yeah. And I think, I, yeah, I think that's a, uh, so, so, that's so interesting I think point. we
1: are again, and I'm sorry, I, I'm, I'm verbose at times, but we are, I am optimistic that this conversation is now shifting in the right direction. Now, policy needs to be created about that, or, you know, like we need to advance policy that is supply based policy, right? So the narrative is changing. So now we need to actually see what happens on the ground as far as policy.
3: And so I want to just circle back to this, the first of the kind of two points, like this idea of council members and the mayor, I guess, uh, local politicians needing political cover. I know EB's talked about, um, taking some of the decision-making away from, from local politicians. And I don't think, It's hard to think of a time where politicians like to give up control or power over things, but it almost seems like it's necessary at this point. Can you talk a little bit more about what that potentially looks like and and where you see that going?
1: I, I do think it's necessary at this point. I do. I don't see municipal process changing on the basis of, you know, fear of intervention by other levels of government. I, I, I think that there needs to be some level of intervention. And I think that I believe that there, well, I know there are some municipal politicians, including mayors, and I won't say names, but they would welcome the intervention. Because again, they're sitting in the trenches And they have zero political cover from other levels of government. That they can say, I'm sorry, ma'am, or I'm sorry, sir, but we have these mandates put on us from the provincial government due to the affordable housing crisis that we have been in for quite a long time and is only being exasperated, and we have to move this project forward. Or a variation of the project here today, tonight. And so um, I think that there i do think that there are also politicians municipal politicians who are pushing back against this right because right. as you said um it's hard to give up power and right. and and uh, and there's there's some justification right because you know they're in the community and they're advocating for what's best for the community and so if that power is taken away from them that there could, you know, we have to be careful that this is a balanced approach and the pendulum doesn't swing so that other levels of government who are not community based are making decisions for communities that are not in the best interest of communities. So it's it's going to be an interesting, you know, time uh in the next year or so if in fact there is government intervention intervention and how it's gonna work.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it's funny. We we've talked before about how it's hard to listen to a council meeting and not just wanna burn the whole thing down and right. start over. But the intervention seems so it's some kind of intervention but it, it's the uh, I just
3: think of and it comes up occasionally you know the Robert Moses in New York, you know blasting freeways through communities it's like the the balance right, where yeah. it's like local knowledge mm-hmm. and the ability to actually you know build in a way that fits with communities versus you know that kind of godlike ability to to get things done, but it does feel like we're at this weird situation where, you know, night after night at council meetings, it's like, wow, this is just paralysis
2: in the face of ongoing crises that are not going away. And the crises need immediate attention. And the bottleneck is so clear, right? In in many cases, it's
1: acute right now. It's a cute. I think, you know, these, you're talking about council meetings. I mean, I sit in in so many council meetings and and now online watching council meetings for projects that we're involved in or initiatives that our industry is interested in. And it is frankly a show on the floor of council. Like it is. It is, and it's no wonder you got you know E.B. and guys like the you know the front runner of the federal conservative leadership race right now, um, Pierre. I never can pronounce right. his last name, but starts with a P. He starts with a P. But he you know he's calling municipalities the gatekeepers of housing, and we're gonna remove the gate. Like these politicians at all other levels of government are watching these council meetings, and it and it's a comedy. It's right. a comedy show. You know, I was at one council meeting, and it was in the city of Vancouver, and, you know, we had the CEO of UDI, who is our indus- the CEO of our industry advocacy group, and we have, you know, strong relationships with these cities and things like that. She's speaking to an initiative that we have grave concern over at a council meeting. One of the councillors has her granddaughter city like a baby, that she's cooing while the CEO of UDI is speaking, And another council member... Is walking around, swinging her arms around, you know, um, trying to get circulation going or whatever. And uh, uh, the, the, the the city manager, oh, it goes over and starts tickling the baby with the counselor cooing her granddaughter, right? And this is what's going on on the floor of council. And there's there's very very serious stuff that we're trying to work through and get done on that floor, right? And um, it, it's I think it's a unmitigated disaster, right? now in on the floor of many of these councils and i should say that there are some municipalities that are really really strong though right like we have to ensure that we are fair here and delineate our criticism you know like city of north vancouver uh city of new westminster very very aligned councils very very um you know their objective is to advance policy and really work on getting things done and and it's been on the housing front and and real estate in general it's very, very, you know, the evidence is there.
3: So maybe shifting gears a little bit, I'm just thinking about it. Well, and it kind of, uh, piggybacks that idea, but in, in say the lower mainland, like when you're looking at sites and I think West group is kind of known as a, often it's not a single building. It's, it's a a master plan community, but when you're looking at, at sites, how much of the the politics right now is that a huge kind of focus on okay where where can we actually find sites to build what what are you looking for when you're when you're looking at development sites
1: yeah so we we're built for larger as you say master plan communities that's our preference you know something that's perhaps closer to transit, something where you can have critical mass and scale and really build a community Uh, that we have a high level of interest in that. Those sites are harder to come by nowadays. But uh, when we are looking at those sites and working towards trying to, say, put them under contract and advance them through a process, we are increasingly concerned about the political risk with doing that and you know we have a site in port moody right now and you know all one has to do is you know read newspapers at the tri-city news or go on some of the port moody council meetings associated with our application and it's being a roller coaster ride and, and when you want, like political risk is a gentle euphemism for what has been unfolding in that environment. And so um, while we seek to um, advance those types of projects, and that's, again, what we're built for, they're incredibly risky and, and it's incredibly challenging to advance those initiatives.
2: Hey, everyone. Pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible.
3: We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience?
0: Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you really made an impact and connected with the community.
3: And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee.
0: Yeah, you know, serving food sometimes.
3: And you made some friends along the way. And I've
0: made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right?
3: Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Konkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer. And they're looking for both donations and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca.
0: Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution.
3: We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in vrp2020. That's oakland.com slash join type in VRP 2020, not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to Oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. And, and so I'm, this is a sort of different question, but it just makes me think so because there's certain communities where, you know, at least from our vantage point, like Burnaby is, is pretty good. Surrey seems like it's pretty good. You mentioned new West and and the city of North Van, at least, I'm wondering how you th- see the the city or the city, the lower mainland, I guess, it, the growth trajectory in these different municipalities over the next, say, 10, 20, 30 years, because presumably you have in-house, you're doing a lot of in-house analysis about, you mentioned immigration and, and projections, like how, how does this, how does this Play itself out, and obviously, you know, you don't have a crystal ball, but presumably you have a better idea than us.
1: Well, I think it's it's no secret that you know the federal government's initiative around immigration is how we're going to grow the skilled workforce in our country, and I think we're projected to have another four hundred and some odd thousand in twenty twenty two. Uh, immigrants landing in uh, our country. I think the same for 2023 and 2024 are kind of rough estimates. Our share of net new people or net new warm bodies here in Metro Vancouver, Greater Vancouver, or let's just say BC, we estimated about 60 or 70,000 people. And those people then get dispersed through the general urban or suburban areas of typically the lower mainland. And so, you know, we 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 only build 20 to 25,000 homes a year here in the province or in Metro Vancouver. And I think that, so there's, there's this massive disconnect still right there between supply and demand. And so looking forward into the future, I think immigration and that policy around immigration is really the driver around growth in these communities, New West, Surrey, all, you know, all of these communities that you mentioned, and they're all going to be absorbing their share of that growth. In some way, and so, and they're all, and frankly, they're all planning for it. Like mm-hmm. there's, you know, in in all of their, if you read their um, policy statements around their neighborhood plans or official community plans and things like that, they're speaking to immigration. They're speaking to the growth, and and so th- they're planning for it. It's it's the next step. How do you have take that plan and initiate the plan to create action? And what I mean by action is that there's homes being built for these people, right? Like that's the next step that we seem to be tripping on or mm-hmm. over.
2: What, what role do you see Vancouver kind of playing in the future, the lower mainland as we move forward? And, and do you think in many ways, I guess this policy is kind of Vancouver in many ways potentially shooting itself in the foot, or does it become this exclusive, um, hard-to-build-in, hard-to-amenity well, yeah, And ridge, it's almost that already, right? It, it, it has become that. But what's, what about the city of Vancouver?
1: This is my theory on the city of Vancouver. It's a double-edged sword. It's the best place to own real estate, and it's the worst place to own real estate from a development perspective the best place because it's vancouver right um there's a scarcity issue in terms of land we have uh land we have the ocean we have the mountains we have the agricultural land reserve and there's always going to be land scarcity here so by virtue of that your valuation is quite stable uh notwithstanding sort of dips and you know in the market and during cycles but there are a number of what i would refer to as tier 1 development groups that are you know no longer doing business in Vancouver as a policy, right? And so, going back to the complexities around financing real estate development, there are fewer and fewer groups who the banks trust. To actually execute, and they have a track record of execution that they're willing to give favor, more favorable financing terms to, right? So, and and these groups, there's make no questions about it. There's rankings, right, of all of these groups from the bank's perspective. And so, when these tier one development groups are shifting out of Vancouver to do work in other municipalities that are more open for business, their processes are less complex. There's there's just a better culture of collaboration. That's a problem, I think, for the city of Vancouver, right? Right. And I think that that the city of Vancouver really needs to think about that. What we see, we see a lot of offshore money coming and and development. There's a lot of people getting into the development game um, because it's been something that's, you know, very en vogue. Real estate development's always kind of this sexy thing and there's books written about it and all this kind of stuff. And what happens is there's a lot of groups that are operating in the city of Vancouver that don't have as much experience, and this and and they're engaging in cl- and collaborating with the city, and they're ultimately agreeing through their entitlement process to things that are non-viable, right? The city will say, "We need you to put this, you know, pedestrian overpass in, and we want you to build a childcare facility." Yeah, okay, okay, we just need to get our approval. Let's get this done, and and then we come in and we say, "No, we can't do that." Why can't you do that? These people just said that you can. Well, have they ever built anything in the city of Vancouver? We have. And we're telling you it's not viable. And then we end up, you know, our relationship gets challenging and, and things like that. And ultimately what ends up happening is like, look, capital has little tolerance for bullshit. Let's just say that. And if... We're trying to deploy capital and generate a, turn, a return because we are a for-profit company, but very community-minded and socially, sure. you know, so have a high level of social cons- conscience. But we, we will still deploy our capital in a place where it's easier to get a return. And everybody will do the same. And so if the city of Vancouver stays on its current course, the people who have the ability to actually execute, get financing and build housing, they're leaving the city. And they're going to places like New West, the city of North Vancouver, Surrey, Burnaby, or whatever. Right.
2: (laughs) Or else throughout the province.
1: Or south of the border. Yeah. Yeah. Right. There's a ton of um, local tier one real estate development groups who are operating in the United States in big ways Austin, Texas, Seattle, LA, Phoenix, Denver, Chicago, and Nashville. And they're going there. I talked to these guys. They're they're welcome. They roll out a welcome mat for us, Bo, when we show up
2: right well, because we're we're also you know I mean from doing this show over the years it, you you gain this appreciation for the development community in Vancouver because we're we're like an export like it we really know what we're doing for sure right yeah so it, that that makes a lot of sense.
1: Can you
3: talk a little bit more about how all these challenges, and I think that's just a another one you just outlined, but how has that shifted kind of your strategic direction like has has west group in i guess since the time you've been there have these challenges led to a to a shift? Like are you guys seeing opportunities elsewhere where where you're actually making moves?
1: Yeah, we have a we have a significant land bank throughout the lower mainland. A co- large component of it is in Vancouver and the vast majority of that is at River District which is in southeast Vancouver there, which is one of the largest master plan communities in the lower mainland. But, you know, we are definitely working to find areas that are more open for business. And we are looking to deploy capital in those areas. And so that area today is like the city of Vancouver is, is not one of those areas, right? It it is too challenging. And I got to say, Like, you know, we call the city of Vancouver, we paint with this big, broad brush. There are some incredibly talented people that work at the city of Vancouver. Also, some of the hardest working people that I've ever met. You know, there's some planners we work with or people from the engineering group or sustainability group or whatever. And, you know, they're sitting there on meetings with us, phone calls, responding to emails at 10 p.m. And so, but they're stuck in this just mirad of policy and just you know, there's, there's, I think there's a bit of a lack of leadership there and, and, and they, and there's, there's a culture issue. Um, So, but I want to make that statement because, you know, I'm, I'm really, I'm kind of picking on the city of Vancouver here and, and I'm telling you in this podcast that we're, you know, looking to not do as much business in the city of Vancouver because we find it too challenging and complex, but there, you know, there are some really great people in that
2: city. That that Vancouver potentially stands to lose. Exactly. And they like, are. must be so challenging. Well, the brain drain, drain I, I think about that a lot, right? Because we talk about how, uh, you know, it's funny, but the city of Vancouver through all of this is going to lose some of the best people that not only amazing development groups, but, but also amazing people in the planning, but also like the hospitals, like when you go across the board and you look at how, how broken some of these things are, it's hard to imagine that. You know that there's there's not brighter pastures for people, right? Yeah,
1: and and it's happening, right? You're seeing a lot of, um, well, I was I was doing something a couple of years ago in a different municipality. And I hadn't been doing anything there for a long time, so I was getting kind of reengaged. And, the, you know, the, the head of planning was someone who I knew quite well in the past from the city of Vancouver. And he's a really, really strong person. And then I advanced an application, and there were two other people that all of a sudden got involved that were ex-City of Vancouver people as well that yeah. were really, really strong people. Right. And so it's happening.
3: Well, and you think I just as an I, and not even at the planning, but apparently just saw this headline yesterday about the graduating class of family doctors at UBC. Oh, yeah, for sure. Did you see yeah. that? Where oh. they were offered twenty five thousand dollars bonuses to stay, and not one took it. Like it was like twenty five thousand. That's like uh, what a tenth of a down payment. Yeah. Like, no thanks. Yeah. Uh, you know, Bo. One of the things we've been, or I've been thinking about, and we've been talking a little bit ab- about on this program is how to consistently supply housing, right? Because it seems like we go through these boom and busts and even in the last five, eight years, you've seen, you know, 2018, 2019 being super soft, at least for projects being marketed. And then there's like this, the last two years has seen this huge increase in what looks like people, you know, and I live in Grandview Woodlands, like along the Nile, everything sells, you know, and there's this big boom and now rising interest rates. And it's like, oh, everybody's pulling back it just makes me think like are we are you optimistic just with market cycles even that we're able to consistently build enough housing like are we able to actually build our way out of this with the with developers like private private builders
1: i think it's a it's a big it's a big answer to the question it will be a big answer to the question um i think that it's going it will be extremely challenging to build our way out of this and one of the reasons is of course these cycles right so when the stars are aligned we, we should all be just sort of advancing as much as we possibly can. But usually when those stars are aligned, you're still faced with this, you know, this regulatory framework that is not, that is prohibitive of advancing as much as you can. And so an example is, you know, Over the last five years, there's been a lot of talk about advancing purpose-built rental housing. Mm -hmm. And and a lot of um, developers, including ourselves, shifted and pivoted into that market. The reasons? Low interest rate environment. Federal government came to the table through CMHC with a really great in, uh, uh, program called the RCFI program, Rental Construction Financing Incentive Program. And the, the province was at the table through BC Housing. Municipalities were at the table offering incentives to build rental, right? And so though and so you actually saw a lot of advancement of rental because the stars were aligned. Now those stars are becoming misaligned, where interest rates are rising. The federal government thought the program was too good, as politicians usually do, and so they tweak it to the extent that it becomes non-viable. Municipalities are going all over the place because they're kind of doing the same thing, you know, where, uh, you know, various cities are saying we shouldn't be offering breaks to these developers for building rental and all that kind of stuff. And so it's going to be extremely challenging. And I think that what everybody has to understand here is that our country is reliant on the private sector, like it or not. Right, like it or not, our country is reliant on the private sector to deliver housing. And so if that's the, and even if you wanted to change that, it's not going that to, it wouldn't be, it would be, 100 you know, years. unfathomable <sighs> amounts of public funding and decades and decades to change that system. Right. So how do we work within this system, right? Back to finding common ground and all that kind of stuff to find a process that we can all live with to, to advance this supply initiative, right? And so um, I think it's going to take federal government being involved, the provincial government being involved, the private sector, it's all stakeholders. And we're going to have to come together to figure out how we're going to do this because building our way out of this is going to be extremely challenging. CMHC just came out with the report. What are we, 3.5 million homes short or something? And I think in Canada, a big year was 245,000 homes, right? Like we're way behind
3: and so as far as I can tell we go through these these cycles where we just get demand shocks right and then you For start sure. seeing 2 to 5% increases month over month which we just came out of one um
1: It's not even flow right we got to figure yeah. out how to to create a, a move away from these peaks and valleys and find more even flow trajectory right. right on the curve
3: because it does seem like yeah it's like there's so many projects you can't keep count of what's going on, and then it dries up where it's like, oh, nobody's launching anything. Everybody's sitting on back because the the numbers don't work. Well, that's today,
1: right? You've seen this construction cost inflation, which is just – it's unprecedented. I've never seen anything like it. You know, you're seeing these gain or these raises in costs on a monthly basis that are just, frankly, wild. Um, and then you have interest rates going up, right? And we all um, use uh, debt to finance our construction, and it's based on um, variable mortgage, variable rate financing. And that's been going up. And And all of these things combined, as well as the carry on this land, because it takes so long to get through the process, we're sitting here underwriting these projects and we're not you know many are questioning whether the right thing to do is advance the projects right Right. now and so now we're going to dip into that valley of supply of of you know and like even when we bring the supply back on it's still not enough yeah but we're exasperating the supply issue by pausing right now right
3: and one thing that i've also we were talking to somebody from street side and it occurred to me like west group presumably is in a very good position like if to to source materials, to stockpile, whatever it is to, to mitigate risk, right? Like you're a, you're a massive company, Mm -hmm. any, like the smaller guys, it's like if West Group's having trouble and street sides having trouble. Well, that's the other thing
2: too, is like, you would imagine that the big players would be able to gain more market share in a, in an environment like this, whether that's a a good thing or a bad thing.
1: Yeah, it it happens. I, I think that does happen. What in, you know, in a market on the on the downside of the cycle, there are groups that start to get in trouble because they're not as well capitalized. And you end up seeing some of the bigger groups absorb some of those projects. Um, and you and you definitely see that happen on the cycles. You know, I, I I desire a healthy market, right? And a healthy market is balanced with supply and demand. There are not these crazy kind of dips that are, you know, interest rates, you know, like, look at this, this inflation situation, which is, you know, close to 8% historical, you know, I think it's 40 years we haven't seen inflation or something like that at at this pace. And so you got the Bank of Canada. Um, trying to shock the system because the inflation is so psychological, and there's and there's all this rhetoric out there, and and you know economists say it's going to go this way and it's going to go that way, and it creates this psychological sort of adjustment for. Um, a consumer including a consumer of housing where they just like okay i'm out right and it doesn't matter i'll sleep on the couch for a little while longer i'll rent for a little while longer or whatever it is and then so that contributes to the issue around viability of a project right because it's lumpy it's not even flow
2: and and this kind of leads me to my next question. Does that change what your strategy is at West Group then? When when the market starts, when we have all these headwinds, people start to pull back. The market's clearly in a position now where it seems to be softening really across the board. There's pockets of activity, but, you know, we were just talking yesterday how the month-over-month month sales ratios seem to be reducing mm-hmm. it, it kind of throughout the lower mainland. Yeah, Well, in some areas, just falling off the yes. cliff, but in yeah. Vancouver... Vancouver, Vancouver still seems to, seem to be relatively healthy. buoyant, um, but does that change your strategy at West Group or are you guys, is it just a machine that keeps going?
1: Um, it, it, I'd like to say that we're a machine that keeps going all the time, but it's, it, it's not totally the case. We do advance projects in soft markets um, because we like to have inventory always out there. We're okay carrying inventory and kind of having standing inventory, except for the city of Vancouver empty homes tax,
2: which is just Anyway, <laughs> that's another <Right>. podcast
1: uh, <laughs> that, that they actually are applying to standing inventory right now. I, I never,
2: ever thought about the risk. It's, think about it's about the
1: unbelievable. It's oh the most God. egregious. Anyway, again, another podcast. The question was, do we change our strategy in this kind of operating environment? And the answer is, yes, we do. But we do still um, advance projects to have inventory out there in the market, to have sales centers open. And that is um, a reflective of, I guess, the size of the company we are. Do we, um, you know, take aggressive stances on the market in the down uh, and look for opportunity in the downward uh, sort of slide? Yeah, for sure we do. You know, we're not known for um, being marauders out there in the market at all. Um, that's not just how we operate because we really believe in, you know, a rising tide floats all boats. So how do we help the, the tide rise? So, yeah. Is there, is there a defensive
2: in, in maybe building market rental or is there, is there, are there defensive strategies yeah. that you employ? So
1: that's a great question actually. So well, you mentioned, I think 18, 19, 2018, 2019, and it was pretty soft in the pre sale market. We, we converted again, all the stars were aligned, low interest rates, federal funding, all that kind of stuff. We converted four projects totaling close to a thousand units to purpose built rental. And, and it was something, you know, our portfolio, it was a balancing strategy for our income producing asset portfolio where we were probably a bit light on purpose-built rentals, so we wanted to kind of fill that up a bit um, as our portfolio grows. Uh, again, the stars were aligned, and we had all the, we have all these teams to kind of keep busy, right? Construction group, or, you know, there's site teams that need to go to projects and things like that. So there were a number of reasons to pivot at that time, given that it was fairly soft on the merchant condo activity,
2: right? Makes, makes sense. sense. Makes, makes sense. sense. Like think in thinking about the market way and way maybe way kind of. Kind yeah. of Backing up a bit and, 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 or or pulling, pulling back a bit, I should say, and kind of looking at just the, the market as it is right now. What are your thoughts on the market for the balance of 2022 and maybe looking out, you know, one, one to three years?
1: Balance of 2022, and of course, my crystal ball is like, God, it's always off. Um, (laughs) But balance of 2022, I would say much of the same. In fact, I would argue that it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. You know, we have another um, Bank of Canada announcement that's coming in the next week or two here. And I would say that, you know, a 075 Overnight rate hike is all but priced in the market. And so I think that that will create more psychological shock. Um, for consumers, and and I think, and that includes consumers of real estate. And so, I do think that um, on the real estate front, it will continue to be soft throughout 2022. Uh, we also have the construction cost inflation. I don't know when you look at commodity prices, supply chain issues, uh, fuel price, like all this stuff is is contributing to what's going on on the construction cost side. I don't see that changing in 2022 drastically, and so. You know, but when I look long term, you mentioned one to three years, I go back to immigration. I go back to demand. It's not going away. That that gap of demand and supply is only increasing. And so long term for real estate and real estate development, I believe that that will, you know, allow for a robust market into the future you know is it still going to be lumpy probably right because we we can't seem until we figure out this what even flow means and how it's done uh we're still going to have these sort of cycles
3: i'm just thinking for people out there like west group operates in across the lower mainland for some you know mom and pop investor or investment invested investment minded buyer out there that's thinking about hey the next six to twelve months I want to, you know, pick up a condo or or something like that. What what's your favorite neighborhood or sub area that you'd be like? Hey, this is the this is a spot that I'm really bullish on.
1: I wouldn't say that I have a favorite neighborhood. I mean, you know, let's face it, we live in one of the most beautiful places in the world, right? And so from a neighborhood perspective, there's so many neighborhoods that are like really cool to like walk through and there's character in the homes or a good architecture in the buildings, great pedestrian realm, including coffee shops and restaurants, all that kind of stuff, right? So you could, and parks. But in terms of opportunity, if there is a mom and pop investor or someone that's looking for a place to um, invest their money in today's environment, you know, I, I I look at downtown Vancouver. I look at um condo values there. And I feel like during the pandemic there was a little bit of an exodus out of downtown. You've seen unfortunately, which is it's actually really unfortunate, the increase in sort of homelessness and crime. And by the way, that's like a, you know, it's just a, a huge, huge. Issue that we another initiative that we really need to come together on and figure out, right? As right. as a society and a community of businesses and, you know, just people and. But 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 that I believe has contributed and perhaps unfortunately to what I think is an opportunity. If you're investing capital. And I think that some of these, you know, condominium, I actually believe that there um, are a significant amount of the product that is currently available on the downtown peninsula is below replacement value. Yeah. If you take construction Mm -hmm. costs where they are and the cost of land and a profit needed to, you know, deploy capital to build those units, I believe that some of a a significant amount of this product is for sale below replacement value
2: today. That's incredible. And the
3: prices, like we've talked about, uh haven't moved much since what, twenty seventeen. Exactly. It's kinda like you look back and
2: you're like wow, like, oh, exactly. this is it's been flat for a long totally. time.
1: Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. uh
2: that's, that's, a, that's a that's a great one. Um what about in the province? <laughs> in the province now that we got you here. I'm like <laughs> yeah. yeah. Asking for a friend. Yeah. Uh, what about <laughs> Texas? Like, which <laughs> sub are you... Also, are you available for lunch? Uh, no, but, yeah, the province. Like, what, are there regions in the province? Like, do you like the Okanagan? Do you like the island? You- I like the island. Oh, sorry, I just... And to, as a company, strategically,
3: if you're looking outside of the, the lower mainland, would you consider other areas in BC or do you just see it as part of the same... Like, man, we're in the same... You're dealing with the same problems, basically.
1: I think that... Um, I don't think you're dealing with the same problems. I think that the problems are far more complex in the Lower Mainland, S- simply by virtue of the, you know, the amount of growth that we've had in the Lower Mainland, right? By virtue of that, policy is going to be created, you know, reg- regulatory framework and all that kind of stuff. So it's more complex here. I think it's probably less complex in many ways to work outside of the Metro Core. That said, we don't typically focus on too many areas outside of the Metro Core. You mentioned the Okanagan. You mentioned um, the Vancouver Island. I do really like the market on Vancouver Island and the fundamentals of what's going on there in terms of sort of job growth and things like that. Um, Vancouver Island can be uh, these, I'll call it a periphery market to the lower mainland. Those markets tend to be, we talked about things being lumpy. They Mm -hmm. tend to be lumpier and those, you know, Peaks and valleys lasting a little bit longer, in particular the valleys. The Okanagan, you know, so much of that market is tied to the economy in Alberta. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you can, you can, it's almost like when, um, the Okanagan real estate starts to trend down, it's like, um, you know, a barometer for a recession. (laughs) Um, and so, uh, so we, we, we have some stuff there. We're not very active. I would say we are looking to be active on Vancouver Island in some ways, um but we have such a big land pipeline here in the lower mainland that we need to kind of get through we're looking at diversifying geographically though within the country i would say going east and perhaps even south at some point in time here to uh, like across the border
2: where where do you like east
1: right now i like calgary for industrial
2: okay right
1: and and you know let's talk about calgary for a second like there is it's a great city there is a lot of really talented People, like, like in terms of a, a, a job for a workforce right, yeah, that y- live young there. And yeah. Educated, yeah. Right? And yeah. so there's there long term, there's like good fundamentals there. Right. And right. so it, it, it will, it, and I think it's already starting to bounce back. In fact, I know it is. And Toronto, you know, interested in Toronto, I think it's a really big market and I think there's room for other operators there. And so, you know, the timing of that, who knows, but those, I I don't really have, you know, you asked about what, you know, BC I've operated in Kamloops before and that was, you know, that was okay. Um, but we're not actively pursuing acquisition strategies, let's say in the Okanagan or the Kootenays or anything like that.
2: Do you see an area that you like from an investment perspective though, like on, on maybe on a smaller scale, like, I don't know, we talked about Comox Valley or something in, in, on this show in the past or where Nanaimo is obviously, I think, from commercial perspective, seems to be gaining a lot of traction right now. Are there any areas that you like just, just outside of maybe West Group? Yeah, uh,
1: uh, Nanaimo is, I think, a great area. <laughs>
2: Asking <laughs> for a friend again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fair enough. <laughs> I don't have
3: any
1: money, so <laughs> this <they say that. laughs> yeah. is I do like Nanaimo. I like the fundamentals of Nanaimo. I, look, I think that there's always opportunities in all of these little Small communities or towns or cities, municipalities, right? It's about you need to go and investigate and and unearth those opportunities. And you need to understand the fundamentals of, you know, what should a cap rate be in Penticton versus um, Nanaimo versus Dunbar, Right. And, it, you know, if if you're chasing yield with your investment and you're, you know, working, finding an opportunity that is generating the uh, appropriate amount of yield for the risk of being in that community. And when I say risk, you're probably going to have higher vacancy and turnover and these different types of things. Then it's an opportunity. Right. and And all of these like let's like and Ticton, Nanaimo, Nelson, Cranbrook, they're all great communities. Right. Rosland, right? Like there's people that live there, there's community, they shop, they go out to dinner, they go to coffee shops, there's an economy. So there's going to be opportunity in real estate and all of these things. It's just, you know, what what's the return in that community versus, you know, a tighter market, like I said, in Dunbar,
2: right? It's incredible. You know, I mean, we've been in BC for 20 plus years, but coming from a different province, the amount of amazing places to live in the province oh, yeah. is just incredible. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah I can I, I I almost like, go live in any of those places. I was going to say, <laughs> I'd be like, ah, Roslyn,
3: that sounds good to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah. I'm done. <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: someone was talking to me about Fernie the other day and how Fern, yeah. like the food, they were saying the food scene in Fernie and the scene in general, mountain biking and all that kind of stuff is just kind of going off the hook. You know what right. I mean? And so you're right. There's all these great communities in this province.
2: Well, we have this segment called the Five Wire, five lighthearted questions to end the show. <laughs> sure, can you stick around for that? Yes, I can. The Five Wire is brought to you by Scalina Real Estate. Hey, that sounds familiar. Scalina Real Estate is a full-service real estate company serving Vancouver, offering comprehensive, tried and tested buyer and seller systems. With over a decade in the top ten percent of realtors in the Lower Mainland and a perfect five-star Google review, Scalina Real Estate can help with all your real estate needs. We also have an extensive network of the best industry professionals and trades right across the country. There's no reason to not get in touch. Head over to scalinarealestate.com to find out more. Okay. So question number one, can Bo Jarvis still do a three flip down a seven flight? <laughs>
1: <laughs> are, you talking, I'm, I'm just, are you referring to skateboarding? Yeah, Yeah. No, I'm just,
2: I'm just, <laughs> I'm just The answer to
1: that is no. Uh,
2: no. <laughs> no. Question number one is what is your favorite neighborhood in Vancouver?
1: Yeah, I um, like I said earlier, I don't know that I. I mean, there's so many great neighborhoods, right? That have the character, they have the food scene, they have architecture, they have parks, natural scenery. Like, look at Deep Cove, for example. I don't know the last time you were in Deep Cove, but I went there not long ago, and and I've been there many times. But every time I go there, it's like this place is like heaven on earth. Yeah. Right. right? <laughs> this and and it, and it's like tucked away over there, and no one kind of talks about it or knows about it except for the people that live there. It's like this little secret, but. But you know, I don't, I can't say that I have a favorite neighborhood in the Lower Mainland. There's just so many great communities and great neighborhoods.
3: Favorite bar or restaurant? I
1: uh, I have five kids. Um, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. we haven't even—that's yeah. a separate pocket. Well, yeah, that's yeah, a separate, <laughs> and all, all from the same wife because that's usually someone's next question. <laughs> uh, poor woman. And uh, so we don't get out much. Is the point? So I, I I don't I can't say that I have a favorite. You know, we've been uh, we've been ordering DoorDash from a place. In the city of North Vancouver, Lower Lonsdale called Cream Pony, and it's a a donut and southern fried chicken place. And wow. oh my god, is it good! So why don't we? That sounds a, incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's wow. a newer it's a newer restaurant. It's I think it's kind of like I actually haven't seen it physically because we've been only ordering takeout, but it's unbelievable. Oh, that and is an interesting point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right
2: What is one book that you'd recommend our listeners read?
1: Um, you know, I have this. I have book conversations with several different, we'll call it forums. And, you know, everybody reads so much personal growth kind of books, leadership development, growth, business books, strategy books. And I have this constant debate with some of these people. You have to read literature as well, right? You go back to, you know, tribes would tell stories would teach by telling stories. And there's so much teaching and learning in so much of our literature. And so I kind of balance literature fiction with the other stuff, the personal growth and the business and all that kind of stuff. But one of my favorite books that I've probably read more recently, and and it's probably in the last call it five years, so it stands as maybe even the number one, is a book by Patty Smith, who is, you know, I'll say the godmother of oh, punk music. Right. Yeah. Her, called Just
3: Kids. Her memoir. Yeah. yeah.
1: And Just kids. um And it was a New York Times number one bestseller for a long time. And it's her memoir of living in the Chelsea Hotel during the heyday when, you know, uh, Jack Kerouac was writing on the road in his hotel room. Allen Ginsberg was there, Janis Joplin, Chris Christofferson, Bob Dylan, Jimi Hendrix, like all this, you know, this sort of these iconic artists and, right. and it's an incredible book. It's
2: just, this you know. is going to bring you back to the electric Kool-Aid. Afterwards. It was, oh, uh, yeah, there you go. it was yeah.
3: uh, no, but it was, I know I haven't read it, but it was cri- like highly, highly acclaimed. Yeah. I feel like yeah. that's, and it, my, uh, that's
1: a great My wife one. actually read it twice in a row. It was, so that's how much she liked. And it's I not, th- it's not like a, you know, you're not reading like a, a Jason Bourne novel here. Anything, right. right?
2: Like, <laughs> I feel like that's a great audible, just even car listen.
1: Oh yeah. It's an incredible book.
2: Huh?
3: That's a good one. One piece of advice you would give your 18-year-old self.
1: There are no scoreless games in life. And the road to hell was paved with good intentions.
2: Wow. Succinct. That, that, that actually, that's a great summary of this conversation. <laughs> On some levels. Um, uh, and, and, and last but not least, something that you've purchased for under $1,500 that's had a positive impact uh, on your life recently
1: um, my cordless dewalt leaf blower
2: okay, <laughs> wild we had uh, we had just this past week it hasn't aired yet a cordless dewalt drill yeah and and the leaf blower is uh, oh,
1: the leaf blower has been unbelievable. I had this one that. <laughs>
2: You had to plug
1: in. And so you got these extension cords going all over the place. And I've never been a guy that, you know, gas powered. I don't go in that direction, not because of, you know, sustainability things, but just because gas like that is a whole nother realm of. And so uh I, I waited a long time because they're pretty expensive. And I finally bit the bullet and got the the cordless battery power. It's unbelievable. It's the best thing ever.
2: Yeah. It changed I, my life. Funny. We got this cordless like hand vac thing that it just lives in our our, our living room now and we talk about it so much like friends are like okay enough like (laughs) enough about this vacuum uh it's it's, (laughs) side note uh bo how can people find out more about what you're up to and what west group is up to
1: uh, westgroup.ca. Um, we're, pre- we're trying to grow our presence on social media and and trying to, you know, I'm doing, we're doing things like this where I'm um, trying to uh, encourage our leaders within the organization to be profiled a little bit more in the public so that we are generating a little bit more awareness about our organization and what we do. We have flown a little bit under the radar, but yeah, our, our social media and our website.
3: Fantastic. well, thanks again, Bo, for your time that was uh that was a fantastic conversation. I feel like there was a question, and we're done. but about five kids, president of West group, like yeah. you must have some pretty good systems in place because uh, well, must be a busy guy
1: generally an unmitigated design <laughs> 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 one of my one of my uh one of our executives he his, he said that I thrive in chaos, which is pro worrisome because that means I'm seeking it. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah. or creating it. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Never a dull moment. Well, thanks again, Bo, for your time.
1: Thank you, guys.
3: So there you have it, folks, our discussion
2: with president of West Group, Bo Jarvis. Really enjoyed that conversation with Bo, Matt. Great having him in the studio. Super thoughtful interview just in general. And, man, we covered everything. Really thought-provoking. You know, and again, the one thing I, I think about is I think
3: lumpy was the term. Right. But this kind of uneven growth Trajectory that Vancouver yeah. goes on, and you know, one thing I, I didn't say, but I was thinking about was, you know, we talk a lot about these the dem- ongoing demand shocks where we go through these quiet periods, and then crazy demand shocks, which we just have come out the other side sure. of, sure, and then a quiet period, and inevitably another demand shock, where we'll see, right, you know, big increases in pricing because the issues with supply that Bo talked about, yeah. But one thing I was thinking about this lumpy is so many people get hurt. Right. It, with this type of development, right? Yeah. So many people get hurt on the way up because they lose out, they miss out, they miss their chance to, to own their own home. And so many people get hurt on the way down. And I'm thinking, you know, some of the bedroom communities right now that went sky high and, you know, inevitably people are, are already getting hurt and, yeah. and some are going to get crushed. So it's just, I feel like there's, there's something here about getting this even keel development, right? Which I think is probably
2: impossible, Mm -hmm. but a little bit, we can move in that direction. Yeah, the term lumpy is interesting. For years, I've been using it to describe your physique, and now I'm going to start applying it to the market. Uh, so it's a great way to kind of think of things. What else do we got for the day, Matt? What, what
3: else do we got for the day? We have Podcast.com. This is our website where all things real estate related live. Head over to com where you can find things like the Live Wire. This is our weekly mailer. This last week, and we don't talk about the stats, but uh, I think we should talk about the stats next week. We just sent out stats, sales ratios, really great residential pre-sale opportunities right now, and right. I feel like the opportunities are starting to emerge in that area. Um, Hundred percent, and the the market conditions, including interest rates, I feel like are all aligning to make some potentially good buys. We got industrial projects deal of the month. There's no reason why you shouldn't be on, including our our podcast. Like, there's no reason you shouldn't be on the live
2: wire. We also have private client services. Because Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor level information for free at your fingertips. All you got to do is sign up at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And one thing I want to say, and I've said this before, but man, there's no better time to be on PCS only because in a market that's transitioning, you need that sales data. You need the sold prices, Right. And that's what you're getting at PCS. So, you know, we can all see what they're listed for, but what are they selling for?
3: That's that's exactly it.
2: And there's been some doozies lately. I, oh, I feel absolutely. like in both
3: directions. It's very, it's very some challenging. Some big
2: prices, some multiple offers, some some people paying yesterday's price, some people carving out new prices in this market. It is a very interesting time. It is an interesting time to have private client services. That is
3: com, where you can sign up to that. And if you want to talk to me about that or anything else, 778-847-2854 or Matt at
2: com, Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or Adam at com. We also
3: got that Kokomo line info at com.
2: Well, have a great week, guys. And we are back next week with some more great content. Enjoy. Two
1: thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. <laughs>